Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. And by Wyndham Garden Lafayette. From Social on Johnson Street in Lafayette, we're out to lunch with creative business consultant Aileen Bennett. It's business Acadiana style. Hi, I'm Aileen Bennett. Welcome to Out to Lunch. It's interesting how many indigenous populations have a view of their place in the universe that defines them as stewards of the earth. Australian Aborigines, Native Americans and others see themselves as intimately connected to the land. Here in Acadiana, we're intimately connected to the land in an agricultural sense, but you wouldn't expect to see Neil deGrasse Tyson delivering a lecture on Cajun cosmology. If anything, the spiritual aspect of both Cajun and European immigrants here are shared in Catholicism, whose worship is mostly directed upwards to the heavens, not down to the earth. Nevertheless, in recent years, we have come to realize that we're all stewards of the earth. Whether you believe in man-made climate change or you think that something other than science is behind it, we know we have to do what we can to preserve green spaces and to grow and consume crops responsibly. Most of us try and incorporate these philosophies into our everyday lives. But for some of us, stewardship of the land is everyday life. As a student, E.B. Brooks started a campaign to save the green space, then known as the UL Horse Farm. The campaign worked. In 2013, E.B. went to work for Lafayette Central Park, the non-profit formed to oversee the design, development, operation and maintenance of what we now call Moncas Park. Today, E.B. is the organization's executive director and has helped raise over $14 million towards the park's construction. E.B. Brooks, welcome to Out to Lunch. Thanks for having me. Beth James is a seventh generation steward of her family's land, over 1,100 acres in St. Landry Parish. Beth is the co-owner of James Farms and co-founder of a fairly new venture, a rice mill making a product called Prairie Rond Long Grain Rice. Beth, welcome to Out to Lunch. Thank you for having us. E.B., the horse farm, or Moncas Park, is a beautiful piece of land right in the heart of Lafayette. You have an ambitious plan for the park, which includes an amphitheater, a dog park, a sculpture garden, and much more. Building all of this is going to cost a lot of money. So far, you've raised 14 million, and that's taken a lot of hard work and sales pitches on your part. I know part of the reason that you got involved with this project in the first place was to stop the land being developed for private use, like houses and condos. But have you considered that for 14 million, you could build a pretty decent condo building? It wouldn't, take up, <laughs> it wouldn't take up enough space to sabotage your overall brands and you'd probably make, end up making about 40 million on the sale price of the individual condos. I imagine there are developers that have already suggested this to you. What exactly would you object to in that scenario? You know, we actually have heard that. There are a lot of developers that are like, you know, can you imagine the amount of money that you could make from this amount of land in the middle of the city? Yeah, just take part of it, make lots of yeah. money and use it on the rest. There was even a plan early in the days to like line the edge with real estate and you would use that to build the park. That was actually a whole plan. Genius. I know, but in the end, it was a little bit more difficult in the legality of how the land had to be transferred from the university who owned it previously to the city um, really prevented that kind of real estate development from happening. And you happening. wouldn't have liked that anyway, right? And I also wouldn't have profited from that, so you know, I wouldn't have even been involved. But um, 
Honestly, I think it's it's really going to increase the value of the properties along the edge. And so I do expect that in the coming decades, there will be some serious redevelopment along the edges. Um, just We're like already you see. seeing that starting. Yes, I know. You know, new facades on buildings and, you know, kind of a whole new midtown feel. That's what some people are calling that whole little intersection around midtown. the park. Midtown. Midtown Lafayette. That sounds kind of cool. That's right. Um, and so I think we really will see a lot of kind of new development, even though it's not in the 100 acres per se. Beth, you have an extensive resume in business. You started up and ran a successful restaurant in New Orleans, Cafe Atchafalaya. You were the Director of Economic Development for the City of New Orleans. You were a pioneer in online commerce and online information sharing long before Yelp. And you've been a small business owner. All this business experience is obviously very useful in running the marketing side of the family farm, in starting up rice milling and sales business. Have you been running the farm on the side all these years or have you recently come back to farming? Our family's been running this farm for 35 years and actually I would say we were probably the first real farm to table restaurant in New Orleans because we were bringing in our crawfish from Prairie Ron and, and uh, using them in our restaurant in New Orleans. That was the original idea, was we wanted a distribution point, and we ended up buying a, a full-fledged restaurant. I'd never waited a table in my life. I'd only eaten in a restaurant, and uh, we uh, ended up running a full-time uh, restaurant on the corner of Louisiana and Laurel that was a former Joe Petrosi's. It's a neighborhood Irish Channel restaurant. So we were using our crawfish back then. So the crawfish were from crawfish your pond straight our, to the table. Right. So we were that was our primary crop, and we raised rice as food for the crawfish. We didn't really pay too much attention. That was just to the what rice. people did. People grow yeah. rice in the crawfish, and it's just a natural partnership. Right. Mm -hmm. And when did the rice become as important, more important than the crawfish? Um, in 2008, you know, I, my father was a contractor, and so we grew up driving equipment, like tractors and all that stuff. So I would volunteer to go help them harvest. So I was sitting on a combine for eight hours. And, you know, you can think a lot when you have nothing to do for eight hours. And we had always looked at what can we do in terms of vertical uh, growth for crawfish, but I never really considered the rice. And um, rice was is such a commodity-driven pro uh, product that you're not able to control the price or anything. You're at the mercy of the marketplace. And, and rice is a staple and has been. It doesn't go down. Up, sales don't go up it and is down. In every culture in the world uses rice, which is remarkable. And we just I was on this combine and I thought, why aren't we doing something more with rice? So. Um, I got off the tractor and I asked Rolando, how much is a, a rice mill? And that's how we ended up with one. <laughs> and did he say, I'll Google that, or did he know immediately? He had no idea. And so we started researching uh, different prototypes, Japanese, Indian, and Brazilian, which are major rice growers. And um, I chose uh, a Brazilian mill because it's um, modular. You can switch out components as you grow. And, and did it arrive on the back of a truck? No, it arrived in a million pieces, in a, like millions of pieces. With instructions like IKEA? In Portuguese. In Portuguese. <laughs> so we figured it out. <laughs> I would love to have videoed that whole process. Oh my God. How long did it take nightmare. you to put together a rice mill? It took us about six months because we had to modify some of the components. Um, 
They're a uh, straight run, which means all of the pipes connect, and I wanted some safety uh, valves in there so that if something was wrong in the mill, we could shut it off and it wouldn't go into the bins where we package. And so we modified a lot of things. We used all you know people in Opelousas who've worked with my father uh, to build equipment, and so I'd bring in welders and uh, designers, fabricators, and we just kind of made it work. And I have I have a packet of your rice in my hand. It's beautifully designed. But the thing I've just learned about rice is in your rice there's one variety. In other rice in the USA and from abroad, there can be up to 10 different rice varieties in a bag. Right. So farmers each grow whatever variety they uh want to grow on their land. In our area, we all grow the same rice so that there's no cross-pollination. And we use um, a non-GMO uh, rice seed. And um, in some of the other um, farmers, are, you know, in different parts of the country, they use different varieties. And when they go to the mill, they sell whatever they have, and it's all mixed together and then bagged. So does it taste, is it like single-source coffee and single-source chocolate? It does it cooks, taste better? It tastes better because it's freshly milled. It's milled, you know, almost within weeks of hitting the shelf. And it's more consistent so it cooks the and same all the time because evenly. it's the same rice. It looks, it cooks beautifully. E.B., you have this perfect romantic story that we all like to make sound perfect. You were a student and you protested and you, and you saved the park or you helped save the park and now you went through it and now you're the executive director and we all like to tie it up in a beautiful ribbon. It's kind of a Mills and Boons novel for business. What is the reality behind that? Where were the hard parts in that story? You know, that is the sweetest thing. Thank you, Eileen, because I, I think it's, it really took a village, and I always try to say that because I know that I'm one of the familiar faces that kind of has continued through the entire, you know, 13-year journey And there were some point. hugely influential people in Absolutely. this. Absolutely, yeah, and we couldn't have done it without the political support of the former mayor, Joey Durrell. We couldn't have done it without the president of the university, Dr. Joe, Joe Savoy. So I think really, um, and the thousands of people that signed petitions, you know, and wrote letters and, you know, really came out to the rally. So um, I love that I'm still involved because I think I would be going crazy somewhere else if I was working in another job that wasn't involved in the park. But at this point, you know, I really think that it's the community that really rallied together. And I'm really just the person that sent a lot of email. So that's kind of <laughs> the truth of it all. And plus, the other thing is people ask me all the time about, you know, gosh, you must love your job thinking about dog park toys and, you know, playground equipment. And I'm like, are you kidding me? The days that I get to even imagine the playground equipment and that kind of stuff is are the dreamy days. I mean, it's mostly politics, focusing a lot on fundraising. A lot of it is very procedural and dealing with so many different agencies on all these different levels that have to give the permits and the approval to get this park built. I mean, it's a hundred acre campus for lack of a better word. I mean, it's really a big project that has a lot of strings attached. So it's very political, lots of regulation and that's really a lot of the time that I spend. So, so a lot of us have seen the impressive plans for the park, but we still kind of sneak over there to take nice walks and things, and it doesn't seem like much is changing. Tell me about your day-to-day. -day. What happens in the park most days at the moment? Most days at the moment, people just go out there and enjoy it. It's beautiful, live oak trees and open pasture, lots of trails in the woods and the ravines, which is really kind of a special topography for here in Lafayette. Um, and so, and the farmer's market happens every week. It's happening as we speak. Uh, so it's Saturday, eight to noon, every weekend. Um, but really it's just this passive green space, 
but it's only going to get better with time as we and start And are your making... days spent just gazing out on the beauty? Um, just I imagine you just sitting there going, nothing's happening yet, we're just gazing out, let me just wander around the park, sit on the tree swing, and that's what you do day to day. That's Please correct me. That's not what I do day to day. I actually manage, um, so I manage all the architects, engineers, landscape architects, PR and marketing people. Um, just to kind of keep the train moving, right? So I don't actually do the design, but I actually just send the email to make sure that the, the work is coordinated, that we're meeting our deadlines, and that we're on budget and hopefully on time. And there's the one question that I've been asked more about the park. Um, I'm sure you've been asked this, so let's put it out there. We see these impressive things. There's mini golf going in, there's um, dog parks and ponds and all these amazing things. Are you cutting down any trees to do this? So we are going to be cutting down some invasive species, but we're not going to cut down any of the live oak trees or any of the beautiful trees in that forested ravine. Um, we do have a lot of chicken trees, and so that's kind of an issue. There are very invasive species across Louisiana. Chinese tallow is actually their kind of more formal name. Um, so anyway, so that is that is something that it's, it's a tough question to answer because a lot of people don't want to see any trees cut down but at the same time from a naturalist perspective which is what I am um, and an environmentalist perspective cutting down invasive species and removing those from our landscape is very very so important a tree doesn't run. just get cut down because it's in the wrong place absolutely not and actually I'm glad you asked that question because we went through there was a I can hear Lafayette sighing as we say this <laughs> well there's an extent there we went through a really extensive effort to um, to locate survey measure identify and tag every tree that was over a certain size and caliper which is basically like its width at the at chest height um, and so we tagged them all and I've actually noticed that a lot of people have removed those tags and I wonder I'm like do they really think that this is the 423rd tree we're gonna cut down in order no this is 423 like a beautiful like cherry bark oak in the middle of the forest that's 200 years old and has a girth of 164 inches like that is what that 423 meters. Yeah, I see me. people see these incredible pictures of what the park will look like yes. and think that that's more important than nature and people get concerned and take tags away from trees. It's um, Right. I do understand that, but I think what we're actually going to be doing is installing or you know, planting a lot more trees and beautiful natural landscapes that really honor a lot of the different landscapes that exist here in South Louisiana. So it'll actually be kind of a display of the beauty of what we can see in our natural environment down here. So um, so I hope that dispels the myth because it will be a beautiful landscape and we're not going to cut down a bunch of the trees and only plant a lot more. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Aileen Bennett. I'm talking with E.B. Brooks, Executive Director of Moncus Park, and Beth James, who farms her family land in St. Landry Parish and recently started milling and selling Prairie Ronde Long Grain Rice. We'll be back after this very brief break. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Aileen Bennett. I'm talking with E.B. Brooks, Executive Director of Moncus Park, and Beth James, who farms her family land in St. Landry Parish and recently started milling and selling Prairie Ronde Long Grain Rice. And Beth, your company actually has a lot of innovation behind it. Your father was one of the first people to farm crawfish and, and sell them in a restaurant. You were really one of the originators of the real farm to table before it was a phrase, I'm sure. Right. I'm sure that wasn't what you said then, mm -hmm. but that. And now you've gone into producing a mill in your own rice rather than just growing it and selling it to other people. What's next? Well, we're, I'm working with one of the companies in Opelousas um, that produces probably most of the seasoning in the United, well, in the South for sure. Uh, they package and do that. And so we're looking at doing, uh, I want to drop different ways to cook rice into the bags. And so we're going to move toward 
those kinds of products, I think. So you would buy a pack of rice with a seasoning packet already mm -hmm. in and it? And instructions how to do it. And does that mean people who aren't Cajun can cook more Cajun food? It means people can cook food. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very... That's one of the, the, the best answers I've ever heard. It means people can cook food, which is something that a lot of people can't do these days. I can't tell you, but there's a member in my family who... Um, I love sentences that believe I can't... That yes, start, I, can't I can't tell, tell you who it is, who cannot cook rice. And so we worked really hard on making sure that the instructions on the back were fail-proof. And she actually got it. <laughs> So I know it works. <laughs> so now that I feel comfortable that we've done that, we can add other things to. And you always cook your rice, rice with butter in the pot as well as the rice. I do. I'm reading mm -hmm. the instructions right now. I've never tried that. It keeps it from sticking together. I will learn. And it tastes better. Yeah, of course. And also, I, mean, I say uh, this packaging is is spectacular, and the way you write about the rice, and I think both of you, as well as being in the protecting our land and producing food, you're in the business of making this sound beautiful. And I really want to read something that was written about the um, the park. Uh oh. Again. Did I write this? No, I, I I don't know who wrote it, but it's beautiful. This is the first description of the Moncus Park master plan. An oasis of serenity begins the moment you depart the hustle and bustle of Johnson Street and wind your way through the sanctuary of brightly colored flowers and splendid trees. Your day will melt away as you are greeted with native Louisiana plants that burst with color all year round. You will be embraced by the peaceful strength of the shade cast from tall, strong pine trees and majestic live oaks whose sweeping limbs are truly emblems of our southern home. Should you arrive by foot, bike or car, beauty awaits and abounds. I love it. Ibi, is that that the vision that keeps you working hard when it's a cold day when things are going wrong is that the vision you have in your head absolutely and you know I think the thing that we're most proud of is that we did a really robust job of trying to engage the community to find out what they wanted this park to be and that beautiful serenity in the middle of the city that is that natural landscape that also offers a lot of wonderful things that you can kind of fill your day with that aren't you know spending money in a shopping mall or whatever is exactly what we're building. So the master plan is the vision of the community and I think that's what we're most proud of. Amy and Beth, this is part of the show that we call Another Great Idea. Maybe you've got a friend like this, someone who's always got that great idea for you. They tell you about this job you should apply for or that guy you should have a cup of coffee with or a great investment opportunity you should jump on now. You can take advice like this and it turns out to be a disaster. You can dismiss this advice and miss out on something that might have turned out really great. Or you can take that friend's advice and it turns out to be the best thing that's ever happened to you. Do you have an example in your life or career of a friend who has that great idea for you? Did you take their advice and how did it turn out? I would say that the greatest advice I ever got was from my father who told me, look, just try it. If it doesn't work, try something else. And that empowers you to just keep going and makes you fearless to fail. I mean, failure is the greatest teacher. But uh, the fact that he was behind us in everything we did and, and encouraged not just us, but a lot of people in South Louisiana and uh, to, you know, just try it. And he'd already taken his own risks. He oh, my God, yeah. He was a contractor and a farmer. The greatest risk, the riskiest businesses there are, you're at the helm of Mother Nature's whim, you know. So, E.B., you know, I took a trip for an Easter break one time in college, my very first year, 
and there was a young man who gave me a book. He said, you know, I think, you know, after talking to you and kind of getting to know you, I think you'd really like this book. So it was called Ishmael by Daniel Quinn, and it has completely changed the course of my life. So it's a book about a teacher and a pupil and a conversation about our place in the world and our role in it and how we need to take responsibility for our actions. And as you were talking about stewardship, I mean, that is really what it instilled in me is that I immediately wanted to become an environmental activist and kind of, you know, at least do my part to change the world and make it a better place for future generations. So, And have you gifted that book to anyone else yet? I literally hadn't even finished the book when I went out and bought five copies of that book and five copies of every other book this guy had written wrote on the inside, I hope you like this book as much as I did. If you don't, send it back to me. If you did, pass it on. And I started just handing them out to all my friends. True story. That now sounds like that question was a setup, and it completely <laughs> wasn't. I had no idea. No, I was so touched by it. So, Beth, this is a family business. You work with one of your sisters right My now. My sister and I own the land, but she's not involved in the rice mill. That probably works mm-hmm. better for sisters. No, I wanted her involved, Aww. but she just didn't have the bandwidth to do it. So, what happens next? Well, I hope, you know, because I'm no spring chicken, I'm hoping that uh, this I can get this business growing to a point where my children want it. And um, we have several farms, not just a rice farm, and there's a lot of management involved in all of these things, and they're all over the state. And we need somebody who, you know, will come in and follow suit. Um, and handing on business is, is complicated. Do they know that... This is what you want. Do they do they grow up thinking, yeah, this is what I want, or are they free to go in any direction they like, and you just hope they'll take an interest? We always told our children just to do what you want to do, and you know, like what you do if you can. You know, if not, just make sure you can eat. <laughs> but, right. One but, day they'll be on the show, and that will be their great piece of advice right. they were given. But in in this capacity, I'm hoping that this you know that this part of the business, because we have the farming side kind of down. Um, if we can, you know, groom the next generation, that would be really great for us. How, both of you, how does technology changing change what you do? Because in one way, it seems like you're totally separate from that, but in another way, you're totally connected to the way that we market these days with digital stuff and technology changing impacts. How does it impact each of your businesses? In farming, we use drones. So you can go out into, um, you know, a thousand acres away and look at a kernel of rice and send data back to... If you could see my jaw dropping right now, I did not know this. Um, We used, we did a film on YouTube to show the milling process and that was all filmed with drones. The the farm next door... Do you have a company that comes in and does the drones? The farm next door, his sons have become experts in managing and using these drones and so we hire them to come in and do all of the work and then um, on the tractors you know you can set the GPS on a tractor and um, we laser level fields using computers and I mean it's all very high-tech I, I am fascinated now. Can Besides you set, Facebook and yes, you know all the yes, things that, to promote no. your product. <laughs> can you just set the tractors? Is it like Roomba where you can just set them to do the whole field and you're not driving it? You can now. We don't have those tractors. I'm dying to have those tractors. <laughs> but they're, um, they're out there and a lot of the big farms in the Midwest use them already. Self-driving tractor? Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm coming to... Can I just sit on one and let it drive yeah, me around? Yeah, sure. Fantastic. 
AB, follow that. Oh my goodness, it's hard to. Well, you know, I think with, so one thing that I think it's important for people to know is that we're actually just going to be a privately funded park. There's no public dollars, um, public dollars attached to the park to fund it in the long term. So having revenue generating operations and continuing to fundraise year after year to operate this park is going to be a really important part. And so staying abreast of what people want and who's using this park and how is going to be a very important part. And building condos is still out. Building condos is still out as of today. I mean, you know, I'm not no, going to speak no. for the 50 years from now, but I doubt it. But, you know, I think that honestly, like tracking how people use the park and figuring out what trends in park innovation and in park demands and how people want to spend their time, because, you know, obviously we're going to be at the whim of Mother Nature as well in a lot of days. But at the same time, the days when it really is beautiful to be out there, we, we need to capture as much of the revenue and as much of the usership of this park as possible. So keeping track of all that is going to be really, really important. And there's a lot of neat tools out there these but days to do no that. But you have no plans into, to go in towards it being a new Disney World? No, absolutely not. There are a few things that you can do with your kids. So like kids can go out there and play mini golf or they can ride the carousel or they can go and have a wonderful concert experience in our amphitheater. But those are the kinds of revenue generators or having like a wedding or having a family reunion or something like that as a venue we'd love to be the choice of people's you know special events so those are all the kinds of things that we need to kind of keep up with the trends here in Acadiana we have a centuries-long relationship with the land we've been sustained by the bounty of wild wild lands and cultivated land what we're seeing in the current generations of Acadiana residents is not as you might expect a drifting away from the land but if anything the opposite our current stewards have a greater reverence for the land than ever Beth and EB you are both outstanding examples of the continuing stewardship of Acadiana lands thank you both for everything you're doing and thank you for taking the time to join me today on Out to Lunch. Thank you. Thank you. My guests on Out to Lunch today have been Eby Brooks, Executive Director of Monkers Park, and Beth James, co-owner of the James Family Farms and Prairie Ron Long Grain Rice. You can find out more about Eby's Park and Beth's Rice by following the links on our website, krvs.org and itsacadiana.com. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Morell. Our researcher is Anne Christian. If you want to know what we all look like, you can find photos from this show on our website and our Facebook page. These photos were taken by Lucius A. Fontenot. You can find out more about Lucius at lafphoto.com. You can get this show and past shows as a podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and at itsacadiana.com. I'm Alien Bennett. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to meeting you again next week around the lunch table for more business, Acadiana style, on Out to Lunch. The Out to Lunch Acadiana theme music, Encore Monsieur, Nice Guy, is written by Mitchell Foreman and performed by Mitchell Foreman and Andre Michaud. Out to Lunch Acadiana business consultants are Pete Prados from Innovate Acadiana and Destin Ortego from The Opportunity Machine. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base, joneswalker.com. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. Support for Out to Lunch Acadiana comes from the Wyndham Garden Lafayette, located off Pinhook near Calais Saloon. Wyndham Garden Lafayette is a pet and family-friendly hotel with reception space for large and intimate events, free parking, free Wi-Fi, and a free shuttle within three miles that includes the airport and downtown restaurants.